important. It's a Navy town. The base and naval shipyard have made a home there on the Kitsap Peninsula. In East Bremerton, there's a tidy duplex tucked at the end of a cul-de-sac in a little enclave on Magnolia Boulevard, the kind of block where you're friendly with your neighbors. And there is a young woman who lived there in January of 1986. And the ladies in her neighborhood would get together and socialize and hang out together and their kids would play together. So for a lot of people, she would be the girl next door. Her name was Helene, but everyone called her Nikki. Nikki was raising her two children in that duplex, her precious little girl, four-year-old Adrian, and Marcus, her six-month-old little boy. To make ends meet, Nikki had been working as a cook at an Arby's fast food restaurant. But that chapter in her life was winding down. In fact, the following week, she was moving to California to be with the father of Marcus, her fiance, who was stationed in San Diego. Even with all the hustle and bustle of an imminent move, that Wednesday night, January 29th, was much like any other. Adrian's father, Kenny, had come to visit his little girl after work, as he often did. Even though Kenny and Nikki were no longer a couple, they still had a really good relationship for their daughter. So many things now haunt Kenny about that Wednesday night, the last time he would ever see his daughter alive. As I got in my car, I remember just seeing my daughter look out the window and wave at me. And I just said, I'll see you guys tomorrow. And Kenny, like the devoted father that he was, he came back that Thursday night to pick up his daughter. What he would find would be every parent's worst nightmare. When I stepped in, I kind of stumbled. And when I reached down to see what I stumbled, uh, it was my daughter. Not only would Kenny find his beautiful, sweet little girl, but near her body, he would also find Nikki. The only one to survive that night was baby Marcus who had likely witnessed the murder of his mother and his sister. This is a scene that was horrific. It was bloody. It takes a special kind of evil in order for somebody to be able to do that to anybody, but especially a child. It's been 35 years. Even though the investigation is in the hands of a cold case detective, this case isn't cold. In fact, many believe this case is solvable. They have suspects. They also have a DNA profile that could belong to the killer or maybe a witness to the murder who knows more than they're saying. But what the case really needs is someone to come forward, someone with a tip. That one missing puzzle piece that will at long last complete the picture of the person or persons responsible for this heinous crime. And maybe, just maybe, bring some justice for Adrian and Nikki, and possibly a measure of peace for a grieving father. When you go home, you grab your child, you hug them, you love them, because you never know what tomorrow brings. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard. And this is the scene of the crime. Such a sad, sad loss for this father. And, and you could hear it in his voice in the scene setter. It may have happened more than three decades ago, but it's like it was yesterday in his mind. I mean, I can imagine that, that the image of what he saw that the feeling of what he felt when he reached down and felt his daughter's 
stiff leg isn't something you could ever forget no matter how long you live. And I've actually left, in, as we go through the story, for the, through the case, the cuts pretty long because I wanted him to be able to share his story, which is something that, you know, he has not done because of how everything unfolded, which we'll get to it. But it's really powerful. This case is not only about the murder of his daughter and her mother, but just what happens to the person of interest, to the suspect, to the, the prime suspect as he's dealing with his, this discovery and, and the horror of it, what he has to continue to go through and has gone through. One thing that I want to really make clear, because there's going to be a lot of different names coming up, but but there's a little bit of confusion, and I had it too. Nikki, her actual birth name was Helene, but all of her friends and family and everybody who really knew her called her Nikki. And the little girl is named Adrian. But before we get to the case, I wanted to give a little historical context for what was going on in the world in 1986. Just two days before the murders, the USS Challenger exploded, which could have accounted for the fact that even though the murder of a child and a young mother would make local headlines, if not national headlines, and they did locally, they did make the headlines. The Challenger blowing up was a time and place where people absolutely remember where they were. I mean, I don't know about you, but I totally remember where I was when, when I mean, it was just such a national tragedy. I don't. I mean, I think I was a little bit younger, so I, mm-hmm. I don't really remember. I was in elementary school, so I don't think we were, you know, sitting in a, a classroom watching it like I know a lot of kids did back then. Yeah, I mean, I remembered when I when I looked that detail up, I was like, I was in detention, and <laughs> and, and I remember them wheeling in the you know that cart with the, yeah, the with the, the TV, with the on, TV it. on it, and um and we were all sitting there watching. I mean, it was the most exciting thing, you know, to watch, and then to watch it live explode. I mean, it really uh, made an impression, obviously. But also in uh, 1986, actually in April, there was Chernobyl, the worst nuclear accident in the history of the world, when that number four reactor in that nuclear plant blew up, sending radiation spewing across Europe as far away as Sweden. And we're kind of seeing the same thing now where we've got between coronavirus and the election there's hardly any other news happening yeah, <laughs> in right. the world. Yes. You would think that we haven't had anyone murdered because, you know, you don't really hear about it in the news because we're so busy focusing on these other national and international issues. So, yeah. So let's get back to January 30th, 1986. Even though Bremerton is the largest city in Kitsap County, it very much has a small town vibe. And then if you turn the clock back 35 years ago, a child being murdered alongside her mother, Detective Garland, who is now the cold case detective working this case right now, he took it over in 2019. He says it sent shockwaves throughout the community. It's not something that we see. You hear about it, I guess, maybe more in the news now uh, because of the Internet and things like that. And we kind of see those things when they happen across the nation. But, you know, as far as happening in Washington State or in the Puget Sound or in Bremerton itself, you know, I, I can't think of a I, I have one other cold case that's open right now that involves a child murder. But that's that's it. So this was a huge, huge discovery, a huge case. And although Marty wasn't at the scene, he's going to describe what they found. The bodies of Nikki, uh, also known as Helene Anderson, and her four-year-old child were found in their home on Magnolia Boulevard in East Bremerton. 
Uh, they were located um, in the evening time by the ex-boyfriend of Nikki Anderson, who is also the father of the deceased child. So when they came across the scene, one thing, and as they've done research, you know, over the years, one thing is clear is that Nikki was a hardworking, you know, 27-year-old mom who was full of life. Nikki was the, I guess, kind of quintessential struggling single mother. She uh, had a small child by, uh, you know, the father that we've talked about, and then she also had a baby by another man that she was engaged to, but she had yet to join down in San Diego. So she was kind of piecing together life with a fast food job. Her kids were well taken care of. Her home was well kept. There's no indication that there was any kind of abuse or anything else going on in the home. But she was also a young lady, you know, so she had a circle of friends that would go out together and socialize and and hang out in the block that she was on. And, you know, that's why there's quite a few people in this case that have been interviewed and that we continue to interview because she did have a social group in her. She lived on a cul-de-sac and, you know, and the ladies in her neighborhood would get together. Yeah, they say it takes a village, and I'm sure, especially for single parents, it definitely takes a village to make sure your kids are cared for, that you know where they are all the time, that you know their friends. And, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into having two little kids. As a married person, I can only imagine that the work would double if you're single. Yeah, and, you know, Marty basically estimates that when Kenny found the bodies, they had been there for many hours. We estimate that the bodies had probably been in the residence for between 18 and 30 hours. Which is interesting because Kenny mentioned that he had been there just the night before. That would be within that time time frame. Yeah, so that's what makes this tough, that Kenny was the last person besides the killer or killers to see Nikki and Adrian alive, and he was the first person to find their bodies. So it really, you know, at the time, of course, he's not thinking that, but it puts him in a really tight spot, as we all know, that right. the, the person of interest is always those closest to the victims. Yeah, well, and how could the police ignore this obvious suspect? Yeah, so there was one other person that was there at this extremely, extremely bloody crime scene uh, where there's no doubt that Nikki put up a fight. The scene of the crime was um, the front room of the residence. Both of the deceased persons were found in the front room of the residence, and the baby was also found in the front room of the residence, but in a uh, playpen that was in the corner of the front room. That little baby. I mean, what a traumatic event to witness, even though, you know, the baby was too young to say anything. They can still see. They can still understand what's happening, the vibes. They know when people are screaming and angry. I mean, if you have a baby, you know. They get what's happening around them, even if they can't vocalize it. Well, and then the baby was left there for so many hours on his own. Oh. I mean, it is it is truly amazing that Kenny was able to find, because he by the time Kenny found them, he'd been there for hours and hours. They estimate that the murders took place sometime between 1 and 3 on that Thursday morning, and then he ended up finding them at about 9 that night. Wow. You know, of course, obviously, the elephant in the room, if you can kill a four-year-old, you know, what's going to stop you from killing a six-month-old? A four-year-old is able to vocalize. A four-year-old is aware of their surroundings and who is in those surroundings and able to describe them. The baby in the crib was not vocal. 
likely there's every indication that he witnessed both murders of his sister and his mother. But of course, you know, being the age that he was, just a baby, he could neither describe what he was seeing nor remember it and describe it years later. So we believe the murder of Adrian wasn't necessarily the intent of the person that committed this act, but that Adrian likely uh, walked in on the murder of her mother and was killed as a result. That is so sad. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about that six-month-old baby and, you know, not only did he lose his mother and his sister, but he has these emotional and mental scars from witnessing that attack so early in life. I mean, the brain is so malleable at that age Mm -hmm. that such a traumatic event like that can really have long-lasting implications that they might not even realize until the kid's older. Well, and even then, I mean, we know that you have these memories stored that you don't, you know, as you make your way day to day, you're not accessing them, but you really are. It's just kind of a part of of, you know, who you are and what you've been through. So what was the motivation for this crime? Indications that there was a sexual attack. We can't really go into whether or not that was completed or not. But yeah, we have reason to believe that there was a sexual element to what happened. But they think it happened, what, like in the middle of the night? They believe that it happened between 1 and 3 a.m. So it would make sense that the little girl maybe was in bed Mm-hmm. Something was happening in the living room, mm-hmm. woke her up, and she came out. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really great about speaking with Kenny, because he can fill in those details that, as a cold case detective, you know, we always talk about this, about what they hold back. And you want to get the full picture, but they have to keep something. So Kenny um, has a lot of insights into, you know, not only, as we've said, you know, he was the last one to see them and the first per- and the first person to find them. And he was a part of their life. And he laments that he wishes that he knew more of what was going on in their lives. But, you know, I mean, when you break up with someone, they had a good relationship, but you don't really want to hear about who the person is dating and who their friends, you know what I mean? Like, Sure. All those I, personal details. Yeah. You probably try to just distance yourself from that. Yes. Stick with talking about the kid. Yeah. So investigators found bruising on both sides of Nikki and Adrian's necks, which indicated strangulation. And then Nikki had a blunt force trauma wound to the head. And that's probably where all that blood came from on the TV, the carpet, couch cushions, indicating this huge struggle. So she was not only fighting for her life, but those of her, but the lives of her children. Police did collect, you know, pillowcases, cigarette butts and hairs. And DNA would later become a component in the case, because remember, this is 1986. There was blood at the scene. At least some of that blood came from Helene. Um, she had a wound to her head that bled. Some of that blood may have also come from somebody else, but it was a significant amount from a head wound. Anybody that's had a head wound knows that it bleeds pretty significantly. And, and so there was a significant amount of blood on the couch and on some of the walls and on the carpet of the residence. So what's interesting about this, and again, armchair quarterbacking from something I read <laughs> in a newspaper article, is that there was one blood droplet on um, Adrian's nightgown, and she—it sounds like that she didn't bleed at all. Um, and maybe I'm jumping ahead too too soon, but um, it sounds like that was a source of, like, okay, maybe we can find who did this from that blood droplet. Um, yeah, we've done a lot of work on DNA. Um, you know, back in '85 uh, or '86 when this case was first started, of course, DNA wasn't really even a thing. Um, but we've had that the evidence preserved in a way that we've been able to do a lot of 
uh, workup on the DNA. We actually have a DNA profile from the scene that's unidentified. We don't know for sure that that's our doer in this case, but um, it's a DNA profile that was run in CODIS, um, both at the state level and at the national level, and we have no matches. When you think about how vicious this crime was, not only was there the sexual assault, there was the bludgeoning of Nikki, there was the strangulation of Nikki, but then you have the four-year-old coming in, and this person had to, I'm guessing, look that four-year-old in the face, put their hands around her little tiny neck, Mm -hmm. and squeeze for how many minutes? And this person's still walking around not particularly obvious, I would assume. I mean, if they're not in CODIS and they haven't been arrested for any other crimes, so they're like, what, just out there living a normal life? It's just so hard to believe that that could be true. Yeah, I mean, basically what they knew for sure back in 1986 is that whoever did this was evil. Of course, we took a hard look at uh, the father of the child since he was uh, intimately involved still with Nikki and, and they saw each other often. And I mentioned that, you know, he was the last one to have reported seeing her alive. Um, and he was also the person that found the body. So, you know, he becomes a person of interest for us. But uh, there was no reason really from the get-go to believe that this had anything to do with domestic violence. This is a scene that was horrific. It was bloody. Both of these murders were very personal, uh, up close and tight, you know, in order to literally strangle the life out of somebody. You've got to have evil in your heart and you've got to have intent and you've got to think it through. And there's lots of time when that person is dying that you have an opportunity to change your mind and let them live. And this person that did this, uh, not only did that to Helene, but, uh, also to um, Adrian. And it takes a special kind of evil in order for somebody to be able to do that to anybody, but especially a child. Now, he says that they looked at the father, but there was no reason to think the father was involved. But did they have any reason that they were able to exclude him definitively? Well, I mean, thank goodness he had a rock solid alibi, which we'll get to. But you're looking at from the surface, they, there's boxes, moving boxes that are in the duplex because she's planning this huge move to San Diego the next week. They know that the dad just adores his daughter. And, you know, technically, you know, she's taking him away, so taking her away. Could be a motive. So there could be a motive if they wanted to go there, which they did. But by now, you've got a general idea of the scene of the crime from the perspective of law enforcement. We'll get back to Detective Garland. But for now, I want to go beyond the scene of the crime and talk about Nikki and Adrian from someone who knew them best, Kenny, Adrian's father. So basically, neither Kenny nor Nikki were from Washington. They both moved up from Indiana. And it's really, it's actually really sweet of, you know, what got him to move to Washington. I uh, come from a family of nine, six girls and three boys. And so my sister would always send pictures of Washington State. And the picture that actually got me was the fact that they was up at Mount Rainier in the summertime and they were playing in the snow with tank tops and shorts on. And I say, where you get these trick pictures at? I said, you don't have snow and stuff in, in 60, 80, 90, 80 degrees weather. She said, up here you do. And so I said, I got to come out here and check that out. And so, uh, like I said, when I, I came here, I just fell in love with it. So he ended up moving up here and um, 
He had been dating Nikki in Indiana, and after he came to visit his sister, you know, he decided to stay. I didn't want Nikki to come out here until uh, basically I got settled and got a place to stay. And when I got an apartment, um, I actually sent for Nikki to come out, and we resumed our relationship. And in the process, she got pregnant with Adrian. So Kenny says that there was a five-year age difference between he and Nikki, and that put a stress on the relationship. When Adrian was born, he says he was more of a homebody and that the relationship sort of came to a head, but they parted ways amicably. The only thing I was concerned about was being the best dad I could possibly be. So as, after we broke up and we started uh, just uh, spending different times as far as uh, custody, as far as Adrian was concerned, and that's the relationship that me and her had and just raising our daughter uh, the best way we could. Um, and Adrian was the, the love of my life. Um, she was a blessing. And if it isn't clear in that cut, there's no doubt that Kenny was a proud papa and that he cherished his daughter. I remember my grandma just telling me when I took her home how you know smart and intelligent she was at that age. And just made me proud as a, as a father. Um, as far as being polite, I can remember the fact that her mannerism, that we would go to the store and how kids at an early age would uh, be in the checkout lane and how kids just get distracted and want to just, you know, play with things. And all of a sudden, as I'm in the checkout lanes and stuff, all of a sudden you hear this little voice, you know, asking people, say, excuse me, excuse me. And people would look down at her at that age and just her mannerism in general. And it just made me proud as a, as a dad on how blessed I was to just have her in my life. She did have a mind of her own that I remember the fact that um, when she was younger, um, there was times where she would she would get in a little trouble if she was to maybe get a little spanking or if I was to just tap her and all of a sudden she'll tap me back. <laughs> and then I'll, then I'll tap her again and she'll tap me back. And as I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm disciplining her. But the thing about it was, it was almost like she was telling me, "Don't hit her anymore because she'll hit me back." And so at that time, I just grabbed her and gave her a big hug and say, "Daddy will never spank you again." In general, because of the fact that that was just her way of saying, "I understand you scolding me, and I understand that I'm wrong, but I don't need you to tap me like that no more, Dad." So it sounds like she was teaching you as much as you were teaching her. Teaching her, exactly. It sounds like she had a really, not only a big personality, but one of those kids who's not afraid to, like, stand tall and stand up for themselves and say, excuse me to a stranger and tell her dad, like, no, please stop doing that. I mean, you shared some of the pictures that Kenny sent us um, of his daughter. And she's, first of all, she's adorable. She has, you know, these big brown eyes and she's sitting up so straight and tall in these photos. I mean, it almost looks like she should be resting a crown on her head. Yeah. And she and he was also really proud of the fact that she could actually spell her name when she was like two or three years old. And Adrian is a big is a, a big, big name. It's a big name. But <laughs> it's just it's so, um, you know, as a parent, your kids teach you so much along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just really felt like. I wanted to include that because, you know, this little girl had such an impact on her dad's life. And, you know, sadly, her life came to an end, but she was only four years old. And Kenny says Nikki was a beautiful young woman who would give the shirt off her back to anyone. Even though after we broke up that our relationship still remained good. I mean, we still was because she hung out with my sister Mary up here 
and she hung out with other friends that we had as, that we had um, became close with. It was just the fact that we had just came to a realization at the time that uh, we needed to move away from each other until we can actually find what we really wanted in life. Um, whether or not it was going to be us getting back together one day or not, or just at that particular time in our life, it was just best that we just didn't see things eye to eye. So looking back, though, as I mentioned earlier, Kenny says that that he laments that he didn't know more of what was going on in Nikki's life at the time. We were up and down in our relationship. As far as, uh, like I said before, she likes the party and things of that nature. I didn't like the party. So when Adrian was born, my whole lifestyle changed as far as just wanting to be a dad. And at that time, I think that Nikki still wanted to mingle and go out and do things in general and not be so much tied down into a, a relationship type of situation. So that's when she moved out. And the only contact that we actually had with one another, that's the only thing that I kind of regret that I never really paid attention to people in her life because of the fact that at that time, it wasn't important, the people that was in her life because of the fact that as long as it didn't interfere with our daughter and my daughter wasn't affected by it. It really is reminding me so much of my brother and my niece because they wound up in a similar situation. He was a young father and he actually wound up being a single parent. Um, and my niece lived with him for most of her life, but he maintained a really good relationship with her mom. And they still talked and they didn't necessarily get into details about who they were hanging out with or whatever, but they talked on a regular basis. They had an amicable relationship when it came to anything that had to do with their daughter. And that takes a lot of maturity. Oh, my gosh, it takes <laughs> a lot of maturity. I totally, as I was talking to him, completely respect both he and Nikki, that they were able to put their differences aside. And especially, you know, you know, he wasn't throwing under her under the bus by saying she would like to party, but she was only, you know, she was five years younger than he was. Yeah, he, she was in her early 20s, of course. Who, who doesn't want to go out and hang out with your friends when you're that age? Yeah, and so, um, you know, I can totally see why, you know, he doesn't want to hear the gory details because I'm sure there's still feelings there. And... You know, but that would be how they would connect when he would go and visit his daughter. And he would often do that after work. And that's exactly what he did that Wednesday evening on January 29th. And this is where we've we've talked about this. Kenny was the last person to see them before their murders. That particular Wednesday night, I went by to visit like I normally would go by and visit and spend a few hours seeing how Adrian is doing. And at that time, Nikki had became pregnant again with uh, a son named Marcus from a guy she was engaged to. Otha, that was the six-month-old. That was stationed in San Diego. That didn't bother me at all in general because of the fact that uh, the funny thing about that, the Otha situation, I know that uh, when things had developed, that a lot of the things were saying that I, I was uh, – enraged because she was moving to San Diego. And I says, the, as far as Oath, I said, me and him would go to the Black Black Angus restaurant and talk. And he would say, Kenny, I just want to admire you as a dad and stuff because a lot of deadbeat dads wouldn't spend time with they, with they child like you do. And I said, I wasn't brought up that way. I says that a child is not asked to be brought into this world in general. And it's my obligation as a dad to be the best dad I can possibly, I can possibly be, uh, regardless whether or not me and her mom couldn't see eye to eye on things. 
And when Nikki flew to San Diego and she needed a ride from the airport, I was the one that picked her up from the airport. So that particular night, like I said, um, I went by to visit and sit down and we talked about a little things. And Nikki had pretty much just got off work, I guess, maybe an hour or two before because she was still dressed in her workout uniform. And I was talking to Adrian and asking her how her day was. And Nikki would uh, walk up to her her front window and look out through her drapes in general. And I said, you expecting anybody? And she said, no. And so we just resumed my conversation. And so it was getting a little late, 8.30, maybe 9 o'clock, somewhere around that, t- that time. And so I said, I was, you know, I'm getting ready to leave. And I'll stop back by tomorrow, which would have been that Thursday. And the only remorse that I ever have is the fact that I remember my my daughter, Adrian had asked, could she come and spend the night with me that night? And occasionally I would take her home with me and let her spend the night. But I just didn't like a lot of times because I had to get up to go to work uh, early in the mornings that I didn't like waking her up that early to bring her back to her mom's. And so when I left the house, uh, Nikki's uh, duplex that night, that Wednesday night, I, as I got in my car, I remember just seeing my daughter look out the window and wave at me. And I just say, I'll see you guys tomorrow. I don't like to say hate. I just don't like to use that word. But I hate it that he has that memory, that his little girl asked him to sleep over that night. I could just hear her little voice saying mm-hmm. that. And I could just hear him thinking about it and all of those things. Well, I hope that he knows and hopefully he'll listen to this episode and, and maybe maybe this will help. But I feel like she wouldn't have asked if he hadn't have said yes so many times before. If he wasn't the kind of dad who would take his daughter on a whim just to be with her. If he wasn't such an amazing father, she wouldn't have asked. I love that point. So I hope I hope that he keeps that in his heart. Yeah, we talked about that because that's I didn't say that so eloquently. I was just like spilled it out like, I hope you don't feel bad. I hope. I mean, because I was just like dying inside a little bit when he told me that. Yeah. And he's just a he's just a really good guy. So let's get back. So he goes home. He the next morning he goes to work as usual. Then after that, he has this basketball game. He played basketball for the city of Bremerton. You know how they have those leagues. Yeah. He scored like, you know, 30 points. He was feeling great. And then he's going to end up, you know, getting back there on Thursday, as he said. And so after the game, uh, a couple of guys wanted to celebrate. We went over across the street to uh, Red Apple store, had a couple of beers. And I said, hey, I got to go. I said, um, I promised my daughter that I was coming by to visit her tonight. I picked up a couple of things at the store and drove over to uh, Nikki's house and I uh, got out the car, walked up to the door and knocked on the door, didn't get an answer. And I seen a note on her door that was from the the collections, the furniture place telling her that she was delinquent in her payment and that she didn't uh, make enough arrangements for them. They was going to repossess her furniture. And so um, I went and got a uh, ink pen or a pencil, whatever I had to write with, and I wrote on it and saying, Nikki, I think you should call these individuals because they're serious about repossessing your furniture. And so I got ready to walk away. And as I got ready to walk away, um, and I still think God intervention had me turn back around. And when I turned back around, I thought I heard something. 
So I want to pause just for a second. That furniture notice is, is an important detail that we'll get more into later. But I just want you to, are you tracking what's happening? I mean, yeah. I just so make sure. he went to go see if he could pick up his daughter for a sleepover, didn't have an answer at the door, but there was the notice from the furniture company. And, and then he was going to leave, but well, he, he was going to go. Something. He went and he just was thinking about Nikki. So he's like, I want her to make sure to call these people so they don't, you know, so she doesn't get, you know, messed with with the furniture. And so he goes and get a pen, gets a pen, starts writing on it. And then he thinks that he he hears something. I thought I heard something, you know, from the other side of the door. And so when I turned the doorknob, um, the door, the door wasn't locked. And so when I pushed the door, something was blocking me from pushing, opening the door. So when I pushed the door open, it was pitch black in there. And uh, when I stepped in, I kind of stumbled. And when I reached down to see what I stumbled, uh, it was my daughter. And I reached down and I grabbed and what was her, her leg and stuff. And it was just solid rock. I mean, just just hard. And so Marcus, I hear him crying. And my eyesight, I didn't know what a light switch at the time was. And so all of a sudden I can just visually, she's trying to adjust in the dark. And so I hear Marcus crying in a playpen. So I grabbed Marcus out of the playpen and I ran next door, not to Pam's house, but to the other house, duplex next door and knocked on their door. And I says that you need to call 911. I said, something happened over here at Nikki's place. And so uh victor davis which was the neighbor of nikki's also um his wife grabbed marcus and him and myself went back over to duplex and so he flipped on the light switch and i seen adrian laying down there uh, on her back and all of a sudden i started giving her mouth to mouth and i'm looking across and i see helene laying about four feet away from four to five feet away from adrian you know, and I see her, her gown that uh, she had her nightgown on and it was pulled up, uh, up to her, her, her breast area, exposing half of her body and general, she had no underwear on. And so all of a sudden I'm studying doing CPR and CPR and I'm saying to myself, you know, what happened, what happened, this can't be real. And it seemed like it took the police forever to respond to get there uh, because in my mind it's just like every time stopped and so eventually I started hearing squad cars come and eventually they came in um, and they stopped me from giving CPR and everything as I'm trying to still blow air into my dog because I don't know how long it's been or anything they walked me out of the house and they went and set me in the squad car and so I'm sitting in the squad car and I'm watching all of this running around and all of this maneuver and everything else in my head, I'm still just saying this is, this can't be happening. This can't be real. So they initially put him in the squad car as a suspect or as a witness? Well, at this point, he's not thinking that he's a suspect. He's okay. thinking they're putting me in the squad car because I've just been trying to resuscitate. Clearly, his child was dead and for a very long time. But it's not a secret that when people are murdered, family members are pretty much the prime suspect. But 
you know, imagine trying to grapple the fact that your little girl and her mother have been murdered. He's sitting in the squad car and then they bring him down to the station and they're asking questions like, you know, why do you have blood on your mouth? And and he explains, you know, hey, I've just been giving my daughter, you know, CPR mouth to mouth. Uh, that's why. And they ask other questions that night. Um, but eventually they let him go, telling him they want to speak to him in a couple of days. I remember the fact that when the detectives finally told me that, you know, I can leave and they would like to talk to me in a few more days. Uh, and I said, that's fine. I said, because I'm willing to help out as much as possible. I said to try to, you know, get this, get the perpetrators as, as fast as we could, you know, before they get farther away as far as evidence is concerned. That Friday, my sister Mary said, you need to get an attorney. And I said, attorney, she said, Kenny, they don't have no suspects and they, they're they going to try to pin this on you. And I said, you got to be kidding me. So my sister actually had me uh, get a retainer for an attorney. And I remember the detectives asked me, can I take a polygraph test? And I told them, I don't have a problem with taking a polygraph test. And so they asked me, can I come down on a Monday morning to do a polygraph? And so uh, when I talked to, to attorney John Brody, he says that you tell them that, no, you will not take a polygraph test this, this fast, that you know, you would take one in a week or two, but right now your emotions and this goes by stress and your emotions right now is is not good right now. So I kind of dis, disobeyed him. And so that Monday morning I went down to the, the, the Bremerton Police Department and I sat down with Detective English Nim and it started off great. You know, it started off like they really cared and they really wanted to uh, try to help and help me help them, you know, try to give them some good leads in general. But as it turned out, everything started to shift. And I was there from like nine o'clock to about five o'clock. Um, I hadn't eaten And you don't think about that to after the fact, but I hadn't eaten anything, drinking anything. And so around four o'clock, 4.30, my sister came down and said, I, I need to see my brother. And they says, um, your sister's out here and she want to talk to you. And they say, well, why don't you write on this note that I'm okay, love, love brother, love Kenny. And so I wrote it and they gave it to her. And she said, no, that's not good enough. I want to see my brother. You guys had him here all day and I need to see my brother. So she called the, uh, my attorney, John Brody. And so by that time, I was already in the process of getting ready to take the lie detector test. And they were saying the fact that if I... If I stop in the middle of this test, then it shows sign of guilt. And then they switched the script and they started saying the fact that, well, why, why don't you look? I said, I can look you straight in your face and tell you the fact that you guys concentrate so much on me that you're letting the individuals get away. And the general, they says that, well, you did it out of rage. I say, how can you say I did it out of rage? I said, I love my daughter. And I said, you know, I, I, I care for her mom. I said, she was moving to San Diego. I said, I may not have been able to see my daughter every day like I normally do, but if I miss my daughter, I didn't have a problem with catching a flight to San Diego to go visit my daughter. I said, so the rage that you're talking about because she was moving away from Washington State to another state, that didn't have anything to do with it. I said, me and her fiance was on good good terms and, and good relationship. So there was no rage in general. And so as I started taking this polygraph test, there was a knock on the door and it was my attorney. And so he says, uh, I need to see you. And he said, what are you doing? He said, what you're doing is a smart thing, but what you're doing is a stupid thing. 
He said, I can look at you right now and see that your brain and your mind is not here, that you've been here all day and you don't have to resume this. And so I turned to the detectives and I say, tell him, tell him what y'all told me. And they say, you tell him he's your attorney. And all of a sudden they just went to like, they didn't even know who I was. And so my detective, my attorney just told him basically, hey, from this day forward, uh, if you guys got anything to say to Mr. Hell, you direct it to me in general. Do not contact him. Do not talk to him. You talk directly to me and the end of conversation. And so after that, like I say, it was like 10 years and I, I didn't hear anything from the Bremerton Police Department, nothing about the investigation. So I have so many thoughts about that piece of sound and all that information that he shared. I mean, for one, we always say, well, if you know, if you're innocent, you don't need an attorney or why get an attorney if you're an innocent man? Well, this is why. I know. Because they get what you talk about so often, the tunnel vision, <laughs> where they're so focused on a suspect and they're so focused on finding the evidence that will make that narrative fit that they might not be looking at it as objectively as they should or might not be seeing other possibilities that, that exist. And so, yeah, he had to get an attorney. doesn't mean he's, he's not an innocent man. It just means that he's the father of the victim. He is the ex-boyfriend of the other victim. He is the obvious suspect. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I said that. <laughs> I'll say it again. Thank goodness for his sister who basically, you know, this could have gone a whole in a whole different direction. And they would later say there, the evidence did not point towards him at all. He had an alibi. Um, he I mean, there's just it's just really scary when you hear that to think of what could have happened and, and how far it went and how far it went. And polygraphs are like, I just I think that I don't even know what their purpose is, I think, you know. Well, I think what they are is they're exclusionary. They're not definitively going to link someone to a crime necessarily, but I think they can help rule people out. They can help give investigators an idea of a direction they should look in, but it's not something that is admissible at trial. I know, but the Green River Killer passed the polygraph. I, I mean, like, it's I, like not I'm foolproof. Safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's I okay, bulletproof. Totally I mean, not bulletproof. Yeah. But, I, but I think that sometimes when they don't know where else to go, like they don't have any other leads they can follow or any other suspects and they're thinking... Well, let's just see. Maybe this is one more piece of information that might help us down the road to figuring this crime out. But not every breadcrumb is going to lead somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, as you can imagine, you know, Kenny's relationship with the police soured yeah. quite a bit after that experience. I was also wondering about what he was doing and what he knew about what was happening to his daughter and her remains. I mean, while he's dealing with the police in the few days after he's found his daughter murdered, she likely was taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy and, and other work. And I'm just wondering about what information he was given and like who was handling the funeral well, arrangements well, and, I, and all these things that typically would be the father's job. Um, I think that he has this is just me just based on my interview with him. I, we didn't talk about that, but he has a huge network, like a huge family back in Indiana. And it's to my knowledge, they flew the bodies back to Indiana because that's where they were from. I mean, mm. um, you know, Adrian was born in Washington, but he's got a huge extended family that he's very close to both on you know his side and Nikki's side. And so sure. I think they probably really stepped in to, you know, help him through this and, you know, take care of, of those things. 
But let's get back to Marty, the detective, because he can't really say a lot about these persons of interest that they developed over the years. So Kenny was their prime suspect, but with a rock-solid alibi for Wednesday night and no motive, they looked into three other men since then, all of whom left Washington State after the murders. Which is always a sign that something could be nefarious. Yes. Um, when you're trying to get out of Dodge, you got to wonder why. <laughs> Not just trying to, getting out of Dodge. So according to a reporter, uh, Josh Farley in the Kitsap Sun, now this is in 2010, there just really hasn't been anything written on this case. So this Very is like few. 25 years after the case. Right. Or yeah. after the murders. Yeah. So um, they basically, this has never really been a fully cold case. They've had detectives along the way, you know, after in 1986, when they just ran out of leads to run down, um, the case was reopened by new detectives four times, once in 1993, in 2003, 2006, and 2009. One of the persons of interest was a man that police found out was a neighbor who babysat Adrian, and they ran him down. I believe he is still a person of interest, but they don't have any facts to connect him to the case. Um, another suspect's car was seen in the area at the time of the homicide, and Detective Garland talks a little bit about that. And he contacted the neighbors. He was known to Adrian. He was um, at one time related to uh, Helene by marriage. And he has not been eliminated as a suspect. He has been interviewed um, and we have collected his DNA, but he has not been eliminated as a suspect. So they collected his DNA and they have the DNA profile. Have they been able to say yes or no? It's a match? They've been able to run down and they he wouldn't say specifically which person, you know, he was very like on KG. the surface of it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I've had to go through Kenny. But then again, you know, this is Kenny's perspective sure. as a family member. And it's like, you know, that's not the Bible either. So uh, trying to piece together this case you know, has been challenging when there hasn't been a lot reported. Marty can't really say a lot, but he has, you know, he wants to solve the case. So what has he said about the DNA and whether or not it's a match? So they haven't found a match for anybody yet. So we can assume that this person of interest who had the car that was seen in the neighborhood, whether or not he was involved, we don't know. But that one little splatter of blood was not his. It was not his, but he could be Sure. He could have been there. He could have been there. Yeah. And he could know. Maybe there was somebody else who was there as well. Yes. And and that seems like that's like a theory that really is like floating. So was there any reason other than the fact that his car was seen in the neighborhood and he was remotely related to her? I mean, that just seems so flimsy. I think that what they've done is because they were so laser focused on like four of these suspects, including Kenny. And now they're starting to change their tack. They're kind of thinking, Hey, we've gotten the DNA on a bunch of on some of these people and it doesn't match. So maybe let's open this up. Maybe it was someone else that was, you know, because she had all these friends and like it's not somebody who we would suspect, you know, who was in her sphere, but it's nobody we would suspect. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of where they're as they look more into the DNA and they're finding that, you know, the people that they're testing um, they're they're not a match, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there. So are they like a hundred percent certain though that this was not a break in? This wasn't a stranger. This was somebody for sure, for sure that she knew. I don't think that they're for sure about anything. I think okay. that in 2019 they're like, let's open this up because we really, you know, they were so hardcore on Kenny at first, but that was completely wrong. 
So there were these other suspects that and, – and Kenny has some really interesting thoughts, which I want to get to okay. that might – but you're right. This is the type of case. And in 1986, you know, although there was like – I think that was the year – you know, the, the 80s were the breeding ground of serial killers back back in the day, right? I, I think that they probably couldn't even think like some random person could just come in and do this. Like the the viciousness of the crime, the fact that somebody killed a four-year-old – I think that they probably and, you know, these are not people who are like New York detectives that are seasoned. They they don't get these types of murders in, sure. in Bremerton. So I think that there was a reason, you know, although you don't want to like say, oh, yeah, I totally understand why they got tunnel vision. You can kind of think they were probably just out of their depth with this type of a case. Right. Well, and I was looking in, into some research about child murders, which there's not a lot of because they're actually super rare. But there was a one study done on men who had been imprisoned for killing children. And by far, more than half were related to the child that they killed. So good reason why they would look that direction. Yeah, because most people don't kill children, yeah. you know. So one was the boyfriend of Adrian's aunt, so that would be Kenny's sister. His name is Antoine, and you'll want to remember that name. He was said to have hid in a bedroom when investigators came to his house while contacting witnesses to kind of piece together what was going on. But there's also people in Adrian's life that we haven't eliminated as suspects that weren't as well known to her, that we've considered lately as suspects that weren't when the first case was first opened. So we've maybe uh, opened up our... Uh, feel the vision a little bit and looked at some people that were not quite as well known to Helene uh, at the time of their murders. I want to take a little detour in this case because I think it is kind of ironic. And then also it paints that picture even further how somebody random could be responsible for this for this crime. I found out about it when I was listening to the Murder Squad podcast, which is all about solving unsolved cases. So they were doing an episode on a serial killer called the Taco Bell Strangler. Supposedly, there were links to this case in Bremerton. And so um, Detective Garland goes into a little bit of detail about the uh, Taco Bell killer. These crimes took place in uh, North Carolina. The Taco Bell murders, um, just for clarification's sake, the person that was uh, convicted in those cases. Uh, his name is Henry Lewis Wallace, and he was convicted in 1997 of the murders of, I think he was convicted of nine, but he's suspected of committing more than that. Wallace's victims were petite, black women, aged 17 to 35. Most of them weighed under 125 pounds. Uh, they either came from a, a middle class or a working class background. Almost all of them worked in the fast food industry. And if you look at Helene, uh, that's exactly a description of her. So we thought, wow, that really does look interesting. Now, why would we even look at somebody that's in North Carolina and link it back to Bremerton? Well, the interesting thing about Wallace is he was in the Navy. And uh, he was actually assigned to the USS Nimitz. And the Nimitz was homeported in Bremerton mm -hmm. uh, at the time of these murders. And so we took a hard look at it, um, and uh, I actually um, was able to obtain Wallace's military records, and uh, we were able to track um, where he was at and what he was doing throughout his military career. He 
He, uh, you know, joined the U.S. Navy in December of 1984. He was a recruit in in Orlando until February of 1985. He he went uh, to his his A school in 1985, and eventually was assigned to the USS LaSalle. The USS LaSalle was in the Persian Gulf, and uh, he actually remained on that boat until May of 1986, which was four months after uh, the murders in Bremerton. There's no doubt in our mind that he's not linked. It is very interesting and, and ironic, I guess, that You know, he is here in Bremerton and stopped by the police and has contacts. And his DNA is flagged in CODIS, of course, because of his uh, history. And we were able to compare that to the DNA that we've recovered at the scene. I guess the good news in all of this is that they're clearly casting that wider net now. Yes, they are. And that they can prove that the Taco Bell killer couldn't have committed the murders. Such so many coincidences. He killed young women and killed a couple of kids that were, you know, their their kids and then left that like such little a babies. Bizarre it was, coincidence. Yes. It was such a bizarre coincidence. It makes you want to think like, is there any way it could have happened? I know. Like, that's why I said, did you, did you, <laughs> did you check the double DNA? check the DNA? <laughs> yeah. But it does provide that insight that I was talking about earlier about a person who could have done this. I think there's two victim two of his victims that he had uh, a pretty intimate relationship with, and then one victim I think he didn't know at all, but all the rest of them definitely fell into this kind of, you know, workmate uh, kind of relationship, you know, somebody you see at work and you say hi and they say hi back and you do your thing and they do their thing. Uh, it wasn't, you know, like buddies. So I, I think that's fair to say. Most of his victims fell into that category. He mentioned coworkers. Did they talk with Nikki's coworkers? Were they able to rule all of them out? And that's the thing. They're going back and looking at. Ah, okay. They're looking at people that they didn't. They're widening that network because maybe it was somebody that had a peripheral relationship and was never even talked to. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they saw something or knew something that they haven't shared with police if they haven't been talked to. Yeah. And for people listening to this podcast, you are the people that they want to talk to if you have any kind of nugget of information that could just – I mean, I feel like they're close. I feel like they have a lot that they're holding close to the vest. Well, I mean that DNA profile alone. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes it possible to solve the case. Yeah. So we're going to now switch back to Kenny because he's going to kind of give his perspective. And disclaimer alert, I have no idea. You know, this is not this has not been vetted. This is, you know, but he was there. This is what he thinks. You know, this is what happens. he thinks happened. And I think that it's important to give him the platform to share that after all these years. At the time and stuff, I, I even had an alibi that particular night and stuff because in fact, I was dating. I was dating one of my coworkers and basically we was together that whole night. And they knew all that, but yet they, they still wanted to say, say, you know, look me in my face and I want to I want a, a murderer to commit, you know, admit that you murdered them out of rage in general. And I say, I can look at you across this table and tell tell you that you so busy worrying about me that you letting these individuals or individuals get away with this crime in general. I said, I have nothing to hide. I have not. I'm giving you guys as much as information as I possibly can. This person next door to Nikki is the key individual. You guys need to be questioning. I say, I think that when Pam parents came and picked her up that night and they drove her off, that I think they basically had told her, you didn't see nothing, you didn't hear nothing, and you don't know nothing. There's nothing that the police can do to you on that. And I think that she stayed with that story. 
I didn't hear nothing. I didn't see nothing. And I don't know nothing. So Pam was basically the other side of that duplex. And mm. she was really good friends with Nikki. And so remember earlier, I asked you re to remember the name Antoine. Nikki and Pam Gator was really good friends. And I just says, don't you just find it strange that Pam did not ever go over to Nikki's house at all? And knowing that Marcus has six months that to see his mom and his sister laying on that floor in his playpen, that as far as him needing a diaper change or needing to, to eat or for food or milk or something, as far as to, to be have attention, don't you think that that child cried throughout that day and everything else? And for her to ignore that without going over, knock on the door and saying, Nikki, here's everything all right. I said, because she didn't want, she knew something had happened that night, but she didn't want to be the one to go over there. And then as far as the guy, Antoine, that says that he went over to her apartment and knocked an ass, you know, when Nikki was there, you know, did, did you know where Nikki was at? And she says, no, she don't know where Nikki's at. And then for me to be able to find them and that door was unlocked, it tells me that he didn't want to be the one that goes to go in there and find them to answer the, the reports from the detectives. Because that particular night when I sat in the the, the the precinct at Bremerton Police Department, when they finally found uh, Antoine, as I was leaving the precinct, I remember the fact that when they was bringing him in and I, I was walking out, he never looked at me. He never acknowledged me. He had his head straight up in the air the whole time when we passed by each other. And I'm saying to myself, it was the shoe was on the other foot. I would at least say, hey, Kenny, what's going on? What happened? I say, but he made it a direct point not to look at me and not to make any eye contact with me when we passed each other as I was leaving as they was bringing him in. Which is odd because didn't you say that he was dating your younger sister? Yes. What he thinks is that the baby was crying and the crib was right by the door. And there are reports that people heard the baby crying. The furniture person came over at around 10 a.m. and put the notice on the door. And, you know, furniture, people who are trying to repossess your furniture, they want to talk to you. Yeah. They don't want to leave a notice on the door. And they know people don't always answer. And Exactly. And he heard a baby crying. So he went next door to use the phone, called Nikki's, and nobody answered. Again, and this is before cell phones. This is before cell phones. And I believe he went over to Pam's and said, hey, this is her duplex next door neighbor. Is Nikki, is Nikki home? I think I hear a baby crying. And she's like, I don't think she's home or I don't know what she said. But basically she knew that there was – that this delivery person said there was a baby crying. And they're really good friends. And and Kenny's point is, is that if this is all true and he's read police reports and things like that, why wouldn't she go over and the door was unlocked? And Kenny went and spoke to Pam the night of the murders and said, was anybody there? And apparently she said Antoine had come over a couple of times with another guy. And Kenny was like, why wouldn't they, you know, they probably heard the baby crying. The door was open. Why wouldn't he, you know, he just felt like that was very suspicious. And mm -hmm. Antoine allegedly is a person of interest that they haven't ruled out. So there's just some pieces to this puzzle that they think that that's why they're like, let's look at her circle of friends. Yeah. Because they probably have evidence to support that some of these other people could be good for it. And apparently, according to Kenny, when they went looking for Antoine to get his DNA, he didn't want to do it. I think he did gave it, did give it, and I think he he was cleared of it. But he had changed his name. 
which is really bizarre. Well, and he'd been cleared of being the one who left the blood. But again, yes. they think it may have been more than one person. And yeah. it would make sense then if he had somebody with him that day when he was there in the neighborhood. I could see where all these pieces would fall into place. But what have the investigators seen as far as Antoine? I'm, I'm assuming they did go and talk to him. Like you said, they got the DNA from him. Mm-hmm. So what are investigators' conclusions about Antoine? Well, I think that, and, and he wouldn't say, but reading between the lines, and this is me completely anecdotally reading between the lines after talking with Kenny and then, you know, uh, I'm not getting all the information from Marty, is that I think he's still a person of interest. I think that he was probably cleared with his DNA, but again, he could have been there. He could he could know something. Um, and, and Pam, you know, the neighbor, she moved away too. Mm. So it's like, you know, I'm not saying she was, and I don't think Kenny is saying that she was involved in anything, but that maybe she knew something and was scared to say something. Well, so many reasons why she could have moved away. I mean, she could have moved away because, yeah, she had something to do with it, but she could have moved away because her good friend and her daughter were just murdered next door. Yes. But when he said, you know, didn't you hear a baby crying, according to the police reports, and this is Kenny saying that she told him or she told the police that she had an ear infection. I mean, it's just kind of strange. But I want to add that whatever issues that have happened along the way in this case, there can be no doubt that detectives over the years have put in a lot of work into solving the case. And according to that piece in the Kitsap Sun, in 2003, a detective left a note in the case files for other detectives. It said, quote, 17 years ago, a mother and her daughter lost their lives by violent means, never afforded the chance to live their lives to the fullest. Not only do I need your help in solving this crime, but Helene and Adrian do as well. So, you know, that was put in the file in 2003 when yet another detective took it over for the first time and was like, please help me, help me solve this. Detective Garland, who took over the case in 2019, I asked him, you know, what keeps you guys or what keeps you detectives, you know, trying to solve the case? I have children. And so any case that touches uh, children and that has, kind of holds a special place in your heart. And, you, you know, you think of the truly innocent victims who did absolutely nothing um, to deserve or to lead up to their death. But second of all, everybody, every detective that has worked on this case that I've talked to have agreed that the case is solvable. It's just a matter of finding that kind of needle in a haystack. And that's, you know, why we go through cold cases and we re-examine things and we apply new technology and we kind of take a look at it from a different perspective and and try to uh like I, I mentioned earlier you know kind of widen our field of vision this this case has has dna in it it's got um lots of people who uh knew helene lots of people who uh were in the area at the time that the murders were committed we've got a really good timeline we know uh you know who was in her life at the time and DNA is such a, a magic bullet when it comes to these cases that it's it's like a snowball. You know, once you get that one piece that connects with the DNA, it's all going to come crashing down. It's all going to come together and they're going to be able to solve it. Yeah. And I don't know if I would call it a healing, but for sure, a really great coincidence happened. Kenny just happened to be watching TV when he saw Detective Garland talking about a cold case that he'd actually solved. And then during that segment, he saw a picture of Nikki and Adrian. And for the first time in a long time, there was that flicker of hope that that maybe there would be some justice for his beloved. Just to let you criminals know the fact that if you think that 
you 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 didn't got away with it he says that you know think again he said because i'm coming for you and so that just made me feel you know a lot better the fact that he just not talking the talk that he cares about uh the job that he's that, that he that he's doing and and to try to just give some gratitude and relief to family members and stuff that has you know lost somebody due to a terrible situation and we've talked with Cece Moore, the genetic genealogist, about her work where she does kind of the reverse family tree where she looks at the DNA and then she can identify, well, this person must have some Northern Irish in them and they must have some Jamaican in them. And she can then, you know, look at different websites, whether it's social media or Ancestry.com and, and sort of narrow down the pool of suspects and say, well, it could be one of these few people, right? Have they made the attempt to do that with this DNA? You're just right on time, Cam. <laughs> we have actually explored that. I've worked with a genetic genealogist on this case, and because the DNA is so old and we, although we have a, a profile that's comparable from the scene, we don't have a profile that's complete enough to do a complete genetic genealogy workup. Now, that doesn't mean that we haven't had a workup done because we have. And I can't share with you what the results of that are, but we did get some interesting information from that. And it's pointed us in some different directions than we were originally pointed. Here is the pitch for you to come forward. If you know anything, even if it's, I mean, how many times have we heard detectives say this? Even if you don't think that it matters or that it's going to do anything, he could, that could just be the piece, that tiniest fragment of information that could help them find out who's responsible for the murders of Adrian and Nikki. I believe in my heart that the person that's responsible for this is somebody that would have probably talked to or confided in somebody else. I believe that there's uh, people out there that know more than they've either come forward with because they didn't know who to come forward to or, uh, you know, at the time they were too close to the suspect or the crime. And I'm interested in hearing any and all of those people. Um, we, again, have a very wide uh, view of this case right now, and we're looking at people that have never been looked at before. Um, and so if if you could give me a call and just, again, sometimes it's that very tenuous thing that you heard or overheard somebody talking about one time when they had one too many drinks and you thought, wow, that's really weird. Uh, sometimes that solves cases like this. And Helene's ex-boyfriend, who was in the Navy, the father of Adrian, he's still here. He's still local. I still talk to him. He's uh, he's involved in our community, and and he wants to know, you know, what happened. In fact, it was Detective Garland who got me into contact with Kenny, and I'm just so grateful that he did because it just gives you a a whole different perspective on who these people were and what happened and. And just the ramifications of being caught up into into a case like this. I mean, Kenny has just been through hell. Yeah, and trying to trying to protect yourself from going to prison for a crime you didn't commit while at the same time mourning the murder of your daughter. Yeah. Gah. So I want to give the last the last con the last bit of this to Kenny and what it's been like for him. Uh, as a father. It's been hard, and my younger daughter would be a testimony to that because of the fact that how strict I was with her at an early age and stuff growing up, that 
uh, I was constantly telling her she needed to check in with me uh, because of the fact that I lost a daughter. And if I lose, if I lose you, then I'm done. My world, my my world is you, my world right now, and I can't afford to think about losing you. Not only that, but to watch some of the kids that Adrian had as friends, and then as years went on, I see pictures of some of these kids that Adrian played with. And I see them now, and I say to myself, wow, that's what Adrian would have been right there with that group. It tears you apart because of the fact that she didn't get a chance to live a childhood that she should have been able to live a childhood life of. And so when I was overburdened with my youngest daughter now is the fact that, you know, that I constantly, you know, when she was like in junior high, I say, hey, when you get home, you got to call me you know, call me as soon as you get to the house. And then it just kept going on and on. And a lot of times her friends would always say, you still call your dad? She says, it's, it's a habit that uh, I've been calling my dad ever since, you know, elementary and junior high. And I say, you know, if I don't hear from you, you know, right away, I'm, I'm just overprotective in general. Well, of course, and, you're going to um, think the worst. You're not going to yeah, be do. one of these parents that thinks, hey, it can never happen because it can. Yeah. Well, the thing about it, and I told the detectives at the time, I said, hey, I understand. I see TV. I see, you know, programs and stuff that the first suspect is always the boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-husband or, you know, this and that. I say, but in this scenario, I love my daughter with all my life in general. She was the world to me. You know, my whole wall and stuff is covered with just pictures, just different pictures of her four years, her riding a little tricycle, you know, her sitting down at the, the dinner table and stuff, eating a bowl of cereal and or just got her summer coat on and stuff and in the park and stuff playing. The last picture that I have of her, it's Christmas, of her opening up her, her box and, and of, of, of Christmas gifts that I had got her. And, and who would have thought that that would have been the last Christmas that I would ever celebrate with my, my daughter. And Kenny was kind enough to send us those photos, which we will have on our website. And um, you will absolutely see what a beautiful little girl she was and what a beautiful, beautiful young woman Nikki was. Yeah, the only thing stronger than a parent's love is the love of a parent who's lost a child. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one's, this one hits hard. And I, and, and the, the point of doing this case is that it is solvable. Somebody out there could be hearing this and know something. Let's do this for Kenny. Let's find out who did this. So we'll not only have pictures of Adrian up on our website, but also some more of the details about where and when some of these key things happened. So if maybe you were in the area or know someone who was, um, you know, you can see that information and also how to get in touch with the detectives at sceneofacrimepodcast.com. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime.